This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, thanks to member support. Stay tuned to learn more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman, the usual host, along with my friend and co-host, the Reverend Todd Pruitt. I teach biblical and religious studies at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania, and Todd is pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church, a congregation of the PCA in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Very excited today to have a special guest on. His name is Michael Hamby. He's Associate Professor of Religion and Philosophy of Science at the Pontifical John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family at the Catholic University of America. I first met Michael some years ago at one of Archbishop Chaput's seminars in Philadelphia. On, it was actually on the work of the uh, Italian philosopher Augusto del Noce. Stayed in touch with Michael ever since and become a huge fan and devotee of his writings. Uh, at the end of the program, we will embed some links to Michael's articles into the usual program uh, description. But I want to talk to Michael today about some of the massive changes that have been taking place with dramatic speed in not just American culture, but Western culture in general. So first of all, Michael, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Carl. It's great to be here. Great, great to uh, to speak to you again. And uh, you know, turnabout fair play. I'm a, a, a great fan, devotee of your work and your and your great recent book as well. So, congratulations. Oh, thanks. Well, as far as that book's concerned, I remember sitting. It was in May or June, and my wife said to me, "Do you do you think your book's any good?" You know, wives have this very <laughs> realistic approach to things, and I said, "I have no idea." But I've sent it to Michael Hanby with a view for a jacket commendation. Said, and if Michael likes it, I'm confident it's okay. And <laughs> and a few weeks later, you came through with a wonderful commendation, and I felt that I'd I'd finally made it at that point. Yeah, well, your so. wife put it in the form of a question. That was uh, uh, rather <laughs> diplomatic of her. But no, it's an excellent <laughs> book, and uh, uh, I, I was it was a joy reading it, and and it pays several rereadings undoubtedly. Thanks, Michael. I've just become even more of a fan of yours than I was before. So. <laughs> Michael, you are speaking Carl's language. You just keep that up and everything is going to be okay. just keep keeping praise on him. Huh? <laughs> That's right. Michael, I want to remind you of something uh, that you wrote a few years ago. We want to talk to you about transgenderism. But I'm going to quote from another article that you wrote. And this was for uh, The Federalist. The title is The Brave New World of Same-Sex Marriage. And you began the article this way. Advocates of same-sex marriage feel themselves to be riding the cresting wave of history. And justly so. The force with which an idea has taken hold that is unprecedented in human history and unthinkable until yesterday. The speed at which it is sweeping aside customary norms, legal precedent, and the remnants of traditional morality is nothing short of breathtaking. 
Now, what's amazing about that statement is you're talking about gay marriage. And gay marriage from the perspective today almost seems like a relatively conservative innovation, given all that's happened since. Transgenderism. 200, 300 years ago, if somebody had even been able to conceptualize the phrase, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, which I think is, is highly debatable, and had gone to uh, see a doctor or whatever the equivalent was then, they would almost certainly have been told that that's a problem of your mind. It's a problem of your mind. We need to sort your mind out and bring it into conformity with your body. Even to suggest that today is likely to render you subject to accusations of transphobia. How on earth have we moved so fast to a situation where a statement that many of us regard as a self-evident nonsense has come to so grip the political and public imagination? I mean, that is a really... I mean, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? I mean, um, the, the, the speed with which this has happened is breathtaking. And I think there has to be um, more than one cause for it and more than one answer um, to the question. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I would point out is um, if same-sex marriage happened rapidly and the, all of the intellectual preconditions for bringing that about happened rapidly, um, the acceptance, the, the, the compulsory acceptance of transgenderism um, is, was infinitely faster. In fact, it, it transpired arguably within months of the Obergefell decision. And I think one of the reasons that that has to be the case, besides the fact that there's an orchestrated campaign uh, to bring that result about, and that's not to be minimized, um, is that it's an extension of the same logic, first of all. I mean, once you make the relationship between um, uh, sexual identity and the, the same-sex marriage question in, uh, in, the, in the form of orientation, uh, a matter of arbitrary relationship to the male and female body, um, and that's what the very notion of orientation expresses, is the, the equivalent and arbitrary relationship between any form of sexual desire and the body. Um, it's simply an extension of that same logic, it seems to me, even though it's one, ironically, that, that, that contradicts uh, the notion of sexual orientation in a way insofar as that depends upon a stable conception of, of gender identity, ironically. Um, nevertheless, it's an extension of that same logic to the very notion of, of, of gender or sexual identity itself. It, too, now is arbitrarily related to a merely physical or biological substrate that has no inherent tell no inherent goal, no inherent meaning, uh, etc. So, on the one hand, one part of the answer has to be: it seems to me that it's the same logic working itself out under uh, the force of both its own logical implication on the one hand and an orchestrated campaign to bring about this result. A second part of this, though. Um, when you, when you step back and you wonder with respect to both questions, um, uh, same-sex marriage on the one hand and, and transgenderism on the other hand, when you step back and look at the entire forest um, and wonder how it is that such a result, such a revolution could have been brought about so rapidly, it seems to me that the 
it, 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 that result would be unthinkable if we did not live in a world that was increasingly and thoroughly mediated to us by uh, social media, by uh, uh, the revolution in digital technology. The very fact that these little devices now are our gateway uh, to reality uh, and stand in between mediating our relationship to every other person. And it's like, you know, it's like Tolkien's Palantir, right? You, you, you stare into it and it stares back at you. Um, uh, and it monitors your every thought and it corrects your thoughts by, by, by bringing, you know, the surveillance of all against all to bear on everyone at all times. That surely has to be a factor in how something, um, uh, so revolutionary and so unprecedented could happen virtually overnight. I mean, there's an, there's an, an analog to that, I think, in uh, the reaction uh, to COVID-19. It's a very serious thing. I'm not, I'm not suggesting uh, that it shouldn't be taken with utmost seriousness and that um, uh, reasonable precautions shouldn't be taken. But there has been a kind of uh, constant anxiety and hysteria uh, cultivated and built up through this crisis that I, I think has to be partly a function of the fact that a great many people spend a good portion of their lives staring at a screen, watching the world go to hell. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I feel like something must like that must also be operative with respect to the, I mean, the, the sexual revolution has been underway uh, over the better part of a century, as you yourself have, have, have written about, but the, the rapidity within you know, weeks, months, a few years with which it has triumphed totally um, has to be accountable for on the basis of other factors. One other thing I think too, um, and I don't mean to just talk on and on about this, um, you know, part of my understanding of the sexual revolution is that it is kind of the human outworking of the technological revolution um, in, in two senses. One, um, in what you might call a theoretical sense. It's only on the basis of imagining our bodies as kind of meaningless and manipulable machines uh, that this arbitrary relationship is thinkable in the first place. So it involves a kind of uh, mechanical reduction of the, the, the human biological organism that has a long uh, uh, history in the modern world. But the second aspect of that is the fact that we've actually achieved a great deal of technical mastery over um, our reproductive biology. We wouldn't think uh, a man could really be a woman, I don't think, um, unless we also thought it were possible to turn him into one by either surgical or pharmacological mm-hmm. means, mm-hmm. right? Just, just as the precondition for same-sex marriage, it's, it's very imaginability, depends upon the fact that we can now disassemble uh, the act of conception um, and parcel its, its its parts out among different agents, so that it's possible to create, you know, children with um, well, with no obvious answer to the question of who its its mother is. I think all of that uh, is uh, part of the, uh, the 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 stew here. Michael, you, you mentioned uh, uh, so, social media, um, which I think pl- I agree. I could not agree more um, with the role that it plays. So I, as a pastor, I deal with families whose uh, uh, children are dealing with these things um, and parents coming to me absolutely flummoxed over 
the rapidity of, of the changes that have happened and, and how they see that their children um, have been so influenced. In fact, from all that I can tell, the research seem to, seems to suggest that the number one departure point away from the church and towards apostasy for uh, Christian young people is or are these twin issues of, of homosexuality and, and gender, um, uh, rejecting what the church has held, both Catholic and Protestant, uh, for all of these years, um, we see large numbers of our of our children leaving uh, the church, and and I I place most of the blame for that at the constant media exposure that you just mentioned, because they're being actively catechized by the culture every single day, and and they're being more actively catechized by the culture uh, than than the church is catechizing or their parents are catechizing them. And so, obviously, in many cases, the culture is is winning. And, and not only that, there is an immediate kind of emotional appeal to these issues of homosexuality, gay marriage, and, and transgenderism. There's that emotional appeal that appeals to, obviously, to, to young people and to children as well. And the people's not. desire to be compassionate, I mean, to right. put the, you know, the best face on it. Right. Yeah. In, in, in an article you wrote for the Wall Street Journal, just talking about the Bostock decision where the Supreme Court basically said very clearly that that sexual orientation, gender identity, those are all included in the definition of, of sex under Title VII of, of Civil Rights Act 1964. And, and you, you make a comment in there, which I think is incredibly important for people to realize. You, you make a comment in that article where you say, we're all transgender now, meaning that basically what the Supreme Court did was it said, not only do we have a category now for 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 men who identify as women, but now, you know, it's men who identify as men. You know, we actually have to, to, to state that with these categories that are being forced upon us, you know, women who identify as women seem are, are going to now need to, to make that clear. Men who identify, we're not just men, but we're men who identify as men. And uh, I, I think you make a, a, an incredibly important point there as, as to the fundamental change that has happened with transgenderism. It, it, is, it, is a, it is a delusion that requires everyone's participation. Yeah, in a number of different ways. I mean, for, first of all, you know, uh, credit where credit is due. That I, I, I co-wrote that article with a couple of colleagues, um, um, David Crawford and, and, and Margaret McCarthy. So I, I, I don't want to take sole, sole credit for it. And we, it was very much a collaboration. Um, yeah, and it, it goes back to to you know some, some of what I said in response to to Carl's question. I mean, the meaning of that we're all transgender now is that if being a man or being a woman is simply a matter of identifying as one, that is to say, if being a man or being a woman um, is uh, arbitrarily related um, to one's sexually differentiated male or female body, then yes, we're all, I mean, that's an effectively a transgender philosophy of human nature. And we're all essentially transgender, even if I happen to identify as male, even if my, my, my body and my, my identity happened to align. Um, the arbitrariness of that relation is still at the, at the foundation of the understanding. And so in, in that sense, it's transgenderism becomes compulsory for everyone um, in that uh, this is the 
philosophy of nature that now underpins the law and is inscribed in law and enforced in law. But there are other ways too that, you know, we mentioned in the article, you know, and I've actually had some, some friends who have experienced this, you know, if a fourth grade child decides to quote unquote transition and every authority in life that all the other children experience, their schools, uh, their parents, uh, uh, the media and what have you go along with it. Then in fact, for, um, for the non-trans, I mean, you can't define human, redefine human nature for one person only. Right. Right. And so when in a setting like this, one child uh, transitions with the support of everyone else, it calls into question uh, the very meaning of being a boy or a girl or a man or a woman as such for everybody, for all children. And this is both this can be, uh, on the one hand, something that then becomes a, a felt confusion. This idea of rap rapid onset gender dysphoria, I think, has something to it. And undoubtedly, this pervasive culture uh, reinforced in, in, in social media, as you said, seems to be a part of that. But irrespective of whether that creates a felt confusion, uh, in, in other words, whether someone's own sense of identity is deeply challenged by it, it undoubtedly creates an intellectual confusion for everyone uh, and alters fundamentally the way everyone thinks about the meaning of, of, of masculinity and femininity and what it is to be you know, a, a man or woman, a mother, a father. Uh, going forward for society as a whole. And this now acquires both the force both of law um, and of uh, cultural normativity. And, it's, and uh, cultural normativity as enforced um, by elite culture. Right, right. And, and, and you're not just speaking of hypothetical categories there. My youngest child, when he was still in high school a few years ago, in his ninth grade class, halfway through the school year, there was a girl that decided that she was a boy and wanted to be called by, by a male name. She came to school, had taken a marker and drawn a beard and a mustache on her face because that's what all men look like, apparently. And uh, uh, at that point, the class, all of the other members of the class were expected to refer to her with male pronouns and call her by this new chosen male name. Well, my, my son is the, is the one dissenter in there, but he was disciplined at school for it. He was called out of class twice. And uh, instead of compromising, he just stopped referring to her at, at, at all. But, but he's a rare exception. Most of our children aren't going to have uh, uh, the, the courage or the clarity to stand, understandably so, to, to stand up to the key authority figures saying, no, you must now embrace this. You know, this was a girl that needed help. She was drawing a beard on her face. Right. But instead, the key adult figures in her life said, this is real. And we're going to accept this as reality. Yeah. That's powerful for the child who is under this kind of delusion or, or active rebellion, but it's powerful for the kids who've been taught differently. They're not going to, to stand up to the pressure of a teacher and the other classmates and, uh, and they conform to it. They will. You said something there about the way this power operates that I think is worth uh, drawing out and, and thinking about a little bit. I mean, it probably won't surprise you. And in fact, the, the, the title to our, our article suggests this, that I'm a, you know, an enormous uh, fan of C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, mm -hmm. uh, which increasingly proves itself to be probably one of the most important little books written in uh, the 20th century. It's extraordinarily accessible. I recommend it to all of your, 
your readers and congregants, many of whom probably are familiar with it already. I know how important C.S. Lewis is in, in, uh, in, in your world, as he's been very important to me. But, you know, there's a place in, um, uh, it, it's interesting because the, the, the part, the section of the abolition of man that most people immediately think of is the very powerful third lecture, which is Lewis's uh, warning against the coming brave new world. And he's writing this about the same time that, that I mean, just after, I think, and undoubtedly having read Huxley's Brave New World. Uh, and this is where, you know, he warns of the eugenical future and, and the, the power of conditioning and what have you. Um, a lot of people tend to forget that that little series of lectures, there are three lectures that comprise this book. The first one is on education, and it's a critique of an ordinary English textbook. Um, and it's a critique of the way in which the, the writers of the textbook basically um, reduce uh, statements of uh, evaluative truth, moral truth, to mere expressions of sentiment or feeling, emotivism in, in McIntyrean language. Um, and I'm paraphrasing now, so I will undoubtedly butcher this, but Lewis has this beautiful summary uh, about what is done to a student who undergoes this kind of miseducation, uh, that he's not given a theory so much as a set of uh, philosophical assumptions that will be largely unconscious to him and remain latent until some future point 10 years on, he will be conditioned by them to take sides in an important philosophical controversy that he doesn't even recognize. Yeah, yeah. Now, in other words, what he, what's being done to him is he's being deprived of the capacity to see and to think without ever knowing, in fact, what he's missing. And my great concern about children growing up in this kind of milieu and having these kinds of images and messages reinforced, and for that matter, um, being prosthetically attached uh, to social media and, and, and the Internet from birth uh, and never knowing an alternative, is its conditioning effect in this, in this way. The vast majority of children, three, four, five, 10, 20 years hence, uh, who don't speak up in the way that you mentioned, will not fail to speak up because they're cowards. They'll fail to speak up because it will have never occurred to them that there's anything to speak up about. You know, the sense of what it has meant to be human, um, what it has meant to be a man or a woman and a mother and a father will be largely gone or reshaped or, or, or refashioned by this. and. In this respect, I would say that while at one level, I, you know, I agree with the premise of your question that this issue is so profound that it's, it's, it's really the, the, the crucible upon which this conditioning takes place. In some ways, also, it's, it, it's merely the tip of, an, of the iceberg uh, in a culture whose fundamental modes of living and thinking or living and not thinking, I, I, I should say, are largely indifferent to uh, the existence of God uh, and to nature as anything other than uh, an assemblage of biological material. Uh, and to me, transgenderism is just the sort of highest and most acute expression of the underlying logic of a culture that for the most part is invisible to us and that we, that we swim and breathe and, 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 and drink in all the time. Where would you see hope this. We, we interviewed Rod Dreher recently, and of course, Rod denies that he's a pessimist because he has hope. He's not an optimist, but he has hope. Uh, and as Christians, of course, we, we have hope. 
the church is going to win. We know that. The gates of hell will not prevail. Do you see short to medium-term signs of hope, other things. So you, you teach at the Catholic University, but of course it's a, it's a church wing in some ways that you teach. Mm-hmm. You, you must feel the pressure of the pastoral kind of questions uh, coming to you. Where do you see hope? Are, are there practical strategies that, that Christians can adopt in the current, current climate? Well, I, I think... Um I mean, those are really two questions, aren't they? The, the hope question and the practical strategy yeah, question. Yeah. So let me, let me try the, the, the hope question on first. I mean, the hope, of course, is in the truth and in the resilience of reality. You know, I, we, we quote this in uh, the, um, the Wall Street Journal piece that you referenced earlier, a, a line from C.S. Lewis that, you know, it may turn out to be, you know, real mothers and real nurses who save us. I mean, the fact is, is that that the truth of nature, the truth of our of our of our creaturely being, of our being man and woman, underlies all the violence that we're inflicting upon it, and continues to show itself anew in ordinary, unspectacular ways in in, in human love, in families, uh, and so forth. And uh, it, it's worth bearing in mind that uh, the the gift of creation is irrevocable. And the gift of being is irrevocable. The truth of nature cannot be completely annihilated, however deeply and darkly it can be obscured. Reality is better than all of our theories about it. Uh, And it's the presupposition of all the violence that we do to it. And so, you know, it's it's a daily challenge to to remember that and to trust it. Um, But that's certainly one source of hope. Um, The the fact that, uh, that we can rebel, that we still can rebel against this, that we know, and that all sorts of people uh, know at some level that a falsehood is being inflicted upon them, um, is also, it seems to me, uh, a, a sign of, of, of hope and a sign that, that the, the truth of reality is not going to give way uh, without a fight. I, I do think, though, that there's an enormous political and even po- post-political juggernaut that we are confronting uh, that we are confronting, among other things, a technological revolution that has taken on a kind of life of its own and that they can't simply be overturned by, you know, via an election uh, or, you know, getting the right party in power or this or that or the other thing. And, or, and it's not clear to me that it's not just going to have to run its course. And that's a, a daunting thing. And I think uh, in the face of that, real families, real friendships, real communities, reestablishing those, strengthening those um, becomes vitally important in a practical sense. Trying to preserve and cultivate uh, within and among our families some semblance of real human culture, art, literature, properly festal celebrations um, as ways of sort of resisting this pervasive reductionism, that that too is important. I I think also overcoming um, the dichotomy between practice and theory, um, between practice and understanding. It's very important to understand as deeply as possible both the truth, but also the truth of what's being done to us. Um, And one consequence of a predominantly technological culture, and one of the things that really just remains shocking to me about the speed of this revolution that we talked about earlier is how little actual thought has accompanied it how we've been able to overturn the most fundamental human realities or, or, or read, 
redefine the most fundamental human realities without any appreciation of the gravity of what we're doing or the likely implications. We need to recover that sense of gravity. <laughs> um, and that's an intellectual labor that is, seems to me to it's in, in and of itself have a practical result. So read good books and think about this problem a lot. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 Well, read Carl's book and pray. My That's going to be the- <laughs> part of the solution. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a discussion, obviously, that could go on for a long time because it is important and the roots run deep. Um, and uh, we would commend to our listeners uh, the things that Michael Hanby has been writing. In fact, we're going to provide on our website, mortificationofspin.org, um, some links to some recent articles from Michael that you will want to read. I encourage you to, to read them because they represent very clear thinking um, on these matters. And as he has said already, for all the power of the lie out there, reality is awfully hard to overturn. And so let's, um, let, let's trust uh, uh, and, and have faith in the fact that the Lord has woven uh, within his creation, certain things that are very, very hard uh, to overturn in, in the long term. And uh, as Carl, as you mentioned earlier, also um, uh, the church, uh, the church, as the hymn says, the church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend. I would urge listeners as well to familiarize themselves with the Humanum Review. It's available online through the John Paul II Institute. Some of the best material, not just on sexual ethics, but on technology and, and how it's shaping the way we think and live can be found there. It's, a, it, it's not well-known resource in Protestant circles, but I think it really is doing a, a stellar yeah. job. So I would urge listeners to, to familiarize yeah. themselves with that as well. And, and, and I would just say, I mean, Carl and I have mentioned this before, and Protestants are working hard to try to catch up um, on this on this matter, and I'm pleased about that. But Roman Catholics are, have been doing some stellar work on uh, the importance of, of nature, what God says to us in his book of nature. Protestants have neglected that for a long time. We're, we're starting to, uh, to finally address it because it's been forced upon us. And um, uh, we're starting to address it well. But in this, uh, the good thinkers among our Roman Catholic neighbors um, have provided a great service um, to Protestants and to help us think um, clearly on some of these matters. So uh, thank you, Michael Hanby, for, uh, for joining us today. Oh. And uh, we've so appreciated the conversation. Thanks so much for having me. I, I enjoyed as well as, as you say I, I could stay all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen to you all day. It's great we'll, stuff. Uh, if, well, you know, if it won't hurt your reputation too bad, we'll have you back on. Um, at some I'd love point. to. So, okay, great. Well, to our listeners, again, thank you so much. Go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, where we'll give you some links uh, to more of Michael's work. And um, uh, we'll look forward to being with you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin.
And now for something completely different. This podcast is a service of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Thanks to member support, your generosity and prayers enable the Alliance to provide more ways for Christians to read and hear the truth of God's Word. Alliance podcasts are reaching a new generation. Alliance websites like Reformation 21 and Place for Truth showcase the writings of today's leading thinkers. Reformed events are historic gatherings of respected Bible teachers, reflecting together on a common theme. And Reformed Resources brings it all all together, offering trustworthy audio, video, books, and other materials to strengthen and grow your faith. Connect with it all at AllianceNet.org. Your financial support is urgently needed to keep this podcast online. So as you visit our website, select the green donate button and share your most generous gift. Join us in this powerful, practical ministry. We're the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine to foster a reformed awakening in today's church.